Welcome to the podcast. This is No Sanity Required, and we are starting a new series today that uh, I'm excited about. I don't know how often we're going to do one of these episodes, but we're calling it Beyond the Flannel Graph. Welcome to No Sanity Required, from the ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a podcast about the Bible, culture, and stories from around the globe. For those of us who grew up in, uh, I'd say probably from about the early 90s back, uh, you probably at some point in your Sunday school years experienced what's called flannel graph. Flannel graph was like something about the size of a, a whiteboard, and on the, but it was a, a felt-type material that was on the surface of the board. And then the, the teacher would take little construction paper, cutouts, uh, these figures that were construction paper cutouts, and it would be different Bible figures. And as she told the story of, uh, say, David and Goliath or Daniel and Lion's Den or some of the stories from the time of Jesus, what would happen is she would put these figures up on the flannel graph, on the flannel board. Some people Sometimes, sometimes I think they were called a flannel board, and they would stick there. And so you basically – it's kind of like a book, uh, like a uh, a kid's book that you're taking the figures off of the page and putting them up on the board. And anyway, it was a lot of fun. I remember thinking it was awesome as a little kid. And it was a great way to learn a lot of the foundational stories in Scripture, things that really helped, helped me later when I became a Christ follower. There was a lot of background information floating around in my head from – the flannel graph days. And so uh, I wanted to do something where we look back at those stories because a lot of times we hear those stories, a lot of people hear those stories repetitive uh, or repeatedly in their childhood, but then they never actually learn the the great depth and magnitude of doctrine and drama and the, 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 the part of that story that maybe drives us towards the gospel of Jesus. So, what you're left with is a story like David and Goliath gets sort of convoluted into, well, this is a story about facing your fears or conquering your giants, air quotes around that. And that's not what the story's about at all. You know, we've, we've learned that David is a, is a type of Christ in scripture. And so David was a King of Israel who, who prefigures in some sense or foreshadows rather Christ. And so He's what we call a type of Christ. His, his life was meant to point us towards Christ. In a lot of ways, one way is that we see that the greatest king the world ever knew still had major shortcomings. We see these massive character flaws in David. But David is there to teach us about Jesus because Jesus is the king of kings. He's the perfect king. Uh, same, same thing with a lot of those other familiar stories. Um, you know, the story of Moses leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt is just so full of drama and detail in the narrative and and just extraordinary stories one right after another and it's easy to miss the point that David or that Moses like David is sort of prefiguring or foreshadowing Jesus as our great deliverer you know and so somehow that story is is pointing us to the gospel, is telling us about the gospel. And so if you've been to Snowbird for a men's event or you've ever come to a summer camp and sit in, in uh, one of the guy talks that, that I do, 
then you've heard me talk about David because David is very formative in my own faith as a young Christian. I read a, I read a book about David. I studied the life of David. I actually read two books about David and studied the life of David. I believe one of the books was called A Tale of Three Kings, and uh, I think that was it. And it was like Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the other one was a book by a pastor that many people might be familiar with named Charles Swindoll. And it was just a like a character study of David's life, of David in in, in uh, First and Second Samuel. So those were real formative for me, and I've always gone back to. In fact, the first sermon I ever preached, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I I read those books on David when I was probably about twenty three, twenty four years old, and the first sermon I ever preached, I didn't preach until I was about twenty nine. And I, and I preached a sermon on David. It was something that came from the life of David. So here's, here's kind of how most of us grew up being taught the story of David, specifically the story of David and Goliath. We're taught that there's this, there's this little boy and a young lad, maybe, maybe a young teenager, and he takes care of his father's sheep. That's his chore. That's his task. He's got three stronger, older brothers who are off to the war, and the nation is at war. The nation of Israel is at war with their enemies, the Philistines. And David is at home doing the menial tasks and chores of a farm boy, Um, but he has big dreams and visions like most boys, sort of an imaginative view and understanding of what the what the war must be like, what it would be. And he kind of romanticizes war. This is the picture that was painted from, for most of my childhood. And then one day David is tasked with the chore of taking some food and supplies, a resupply to the battlefield. So we, we learn there that the battle is close to home. And so David's going to journey with a load of goods and he's going to take those goods to his brothers. Three of his brothers are in the war. So David loads up cheese and food and snacks and supplies and provisions and and he heads to the battle the battlefield the, to the front the front line. And when he gets there there's this there's this champion this great large tall powerful man from the Philistine army his name is Goliath. And he's bigger than anything he's bigger than Shaquille O'Neal. He's he's just massive. He's just a massive human. And He's he's practicing an ancient battlefield ritual or uh, I don't know if ritual is the word, but like something that they used to do where each army could produce a champion and instead of everybody fighting and killing each other, we put out our champion, they put out their champion, those two guys fight hand-to-hand and, and they fight to the death. And the, the army that wins um, or, or the champion that wins, that person's army essentially wins the war. And so it's over, two guys fight, one guy dies, one guy lives, and it's over. And and I actually I was I was out in Wyoming a couple years ago and I was doing some hunting out there and we stopped off on the side of the road because there was this battlefield monument and it was fascinating because it ended up being the story of these two chiefs and these there were these two Native American armies and I don't remember what uh I can't remember if you know history, you'd probably you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Was two Native American tribes, and they're fighting. They're in this. They're in this uh, sort of this stalemate of a fight of a battle, and 
no one can win. And so finally the two chiefs decide that they'll fight each other. The two chiefs are going to fight and they're going to fight to the death. And the winner, that, that chief's army, that tribe is, is then the winner of the war and they get to take over all of that territory and they become the dominant tribe. And the other, the other tribe agrees to go away. And so these two chiefs fight and it, and it's just a bloody brutal fight to the death. And one chief ends up taking the heart from the other chief and actually eating it on the battlefield. It's a really graphic story. There's a big monument there that details it and Man, I'm standing there thinking, wow, that happened right here. You know, it's pretty intense. And that, so apparently in more than one culture, it, it was common when battles were fought hand to hand that rather than have thousands of people maimed and killed and, uh, then two, two champions go out and fight. And so the winner then, um, his army rep, the army represented by the winner is the, is the, army that conquers and wins, but there's a lot fewer casualties. A lot of times terms of peace could be made and reached after that. And so this seems to be a situation like that. David arrives at the battlefield and the, this, this champion of the Philistines, this guy named Goliath is standing in the middle of the battlefield and he's screaming and he's calling out to the, the army of Israel for them to send down a champion. And this has been going on for over a month every day and nobody will go fight him. And David hears this and becomes, I mean, he's incensed. I mean, he's, he's literally angered by this. And this is where the story, I think maybe I had had it misrepresented to me. Um, no, this is nobody's fault. Just kind of, I don't know why it's just kind of what we've, I think always all of us have been taught and believed about it. But at this point, David begins to walk along the front line and question the men who are there preparing to go to battle. And he's questioning them essentially saying, Hey, look, how, how can you stand by and let this happen while this pagan, this, this man is mocking our God because what Goliath would do is Goliath would come out onto the battlefield. He would stand there and he would not only mock Israel, but he would mock Yahweh the God of Israel, he was mocking the Lord and he was saying, your God is this, your God is that, your God's not capable, he's not powerful. And so the people, you know, Israelites are listening to this and I'm sure they're mad, but they're more scared than they are mad. So none of them did anything about it. And so David hears this. So he's going along the front lines and he's asking different guys, why is nobody going to fight against him? And even He's asking his brothers this, and they get mad. You know, now they're not just mad at the situation; now they're mad at David because he's coming along, and and so they begin to sort of belittle him. Don't you have some sheep you could be looking after? Why are you here? Why are you being like this? And again, this the, the way the story was always played out in my mind was David's this kid. They're just frustrated with him. They're kind of like, just run along, go back to your chores. You don't understand the things of war. We're men. You're a child. You don't understand. Uh, but when you read the story in the context, the greater context of first Samuel, David is more than a little boy bringing some food along uh, it. In fact, it seems that in first Samuel 16, before David ever shows up to fight Goliath, he's given a job, and the job is that he's going to um, 
work in King Saul's court. So he's coming to work in the court of the king, and it was a hard job to get. It wasn't something that just anybody could do. Listen how David is described during the the search and application process to come work in King Saul's court. This is before the incident with Goliath. This is recorded in 1 Samuel 16, and the story with Goliath is in 1 Samuel 17. So 1 Samuel 16, one of the young men, actually 1 Samuel uh, 16, verse 17. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. So describes him as a man. One of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord Yahweh is with him. And so David is described at this young age as being a man of valor, a man of war. He's prudent in speech, so he's got wisdom. He he speaks, he articulates, he's able to communicate. Um, it's It's a pretty a pretty intense description says he's a man of good presence kind of guy people want to be around. He's the kind of guy that brings confidence to the, to the atmosphere. You know, if you're, he's the kind of guy that if he's around, you feel like you're in a little bit better situation, just having him there. And then ultimately says the Lord is with him. Like God, God goes with this man. And so David is described not as some little kid who's sort of pulling on the coattails of his brother's, asking them why they don't go fight the big scary man. He's described as a man of war and a man of valor. So he's a man that's already proven. Now, how could this be? Why is, a couple of questions. Why is he not at war with his brothers, like in combat with his brothers? And the other thing is, um, how did he become this if he's been taking care of sheep? And so there's a couple answers, I think, that that we can look at. One, um, the Israelite army drafted men at age 20. So possibly David is still 17 or 18 years old. But keep in mind, in a lot of cultures, especially tribal cultures or warring cultures, young boys are trained and raised up to fight from like a very young age. And the way that you see this play out in modern, like in modern cultures would be, uh, I always tell a story when when uh, we we've got, we've got, folks from snowbird that live in other parts of the world doing different types of work. And uh, I remember a group at a, at a training we were doing along the border with South Sudan and Uganda. And there are two people groups over there. Those people groups are the Dinka and the new air and the Dinka and the new air have been fighting for a long time. They've been fighting as long as the Jews and the Arabs. I mean, they're, they're a warring people. And I think it's kind of like they've been fighting so long. They don't know, anything else, you know, and they fight with each other and every generation fights. And so, uh, we were doing this church training, this like church, a training for church planners, um, among the, among the Dinka. And there were some young boys that showed up and these boys couldn't have been more than about 15. And they had, you know, they're wearing flip flops or, or some sort of sandals or, or they're barefooted and, you know, just not, not much in the way of worldly possession and they're carrying AK-47s, Kalashnikov rifles, with you know ammunition strapped across their chest, extra ammunition. Um, and I remember, I remember a couple of those boys just carrying, just they just had a rifle, just a rifle and a shepherd, like a shepherd's staff. 
and was asking around and, and they, they guard cattle and, and a lot of the fighting takes place surrounding cattle over there. And so it's really fascinating to think they grow up and at a young age, they're taught to fight, to, to defend their territory and their livestock. And so, uh, I think, you know, David grows up in, in a border region in the South where you've got other, we, we see this throughout David's early career as a military leader. And even as a, a young King, before he's ascended to the the unified throne, he's having to defend the southern border, and it's because it's such an exposed region. And so, it would seem that at a young age he was proven in battle. He's a man of valor, a man of war, and yet he's not old enough to be conscripted into the into the army. So he's not even twenty. Another thought would be, uh, some say that that David, because David had three brothers in the army that was the most that would be drafted out of one family at any given time. So maybe he's older, but he's, it's not his turn. You know, his other three guys have been drafted, but, but if we look at these three older brothers, when we're first introduced to them a couple chapters earlier, they are older than David and they look the part of the warrior. And so um, you got these three brothers off to war. David is not at war either because he's not old enough or he's just not in the draft because he's not, because he's not one of the three brothers that's gone to represent this family, but nonetheless, he's proven in battle. So he's a man of war, a man of valor. He's defended the family livestock and assets, and he's also managing the family's assets. If you read first Samuel 16 and 17, he's kind of going back and forth from service with the King and with taking care of his father's assets. And so he's taking care of the, the farming operation, the sheep, the he's overseeing you know, pr- probably wool production and all that goes into that. So uh, he's a man of war, man of valor. It says he's skillful in playing. He's a skilled musician. And so, you know, he's not just a, he's not just a rough Esau type guy. He's also a man of, of the arts. And so he's, he's a skilled musician. We know that he's very poetic. He's very well spoken. He's well written. He's a man of good presence. The Lord is with him when he shows up. There's a confidence that accompanies him. And this all begins to make sense when you realize that David goes into the presence of King Saul on the edge of this battlefield. When he hears this man mock and taunt the God of Israel. And he says, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to kill him. And I'm going to put a stop to this. And Saul calls for him because he's making such a commotion. He's so, he, he's, he's so livid and incensed that nobody's fighting this guy. We serve Yahweh. We serve the God of Israel. We serve the God who opened the Red Sea. Do we not know that that God will deliver this man who is a filthy pagan, who is making a mockery of our God? God will deliver him into, into our hands. We just need to go fight. And no one has that kind of faith. David has that kind of faith, but he also has that. He's a man of action. His faith is a faith of action. And so here's this young man who's proven himself. He, in fact, when he gets in front of Saul, Saul says, okay, man, I need to know that you, this, this is what I think sort of the tone of the conversation is. And and you can, uh, you can disagree with me on this, but this really seems more like the tone of the conversation that David goes into the presence of Saul and Saul essentially says, all right, Prove to me, how, how can I trust that you're going to go kill this guy? Because if you don't kill him, we're going to be slaves to the Philistines. So Saul, the king, 
is talking to David. I think it's it's warrior to warrior at this point or cabinet member to king. Saul doesn't remember at first who David is because he has so many people in his service, but but then it, it, he begins to recall this young man who is a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. He's a gifted musician. And he says, how do I know? How can I trust that you're going to go down here and kill this guy? Man, this guy's, this guy's a seasoned fighter. He's killed so many people. And David says, I've killed lions and I've killed bears. God has prepared me for this moment. And with that, David wins Saul's confidence. And Saul commissions him and sends him out as the hope of Israel. And David walks down onto that battlefield. And in the name of Yahweh, he kills Goliath. Kills Goliath. It's it's a powerful story that I think sometimes we've missed some of the finer points that that David, as a young man, we use this story to challenge young men to embrace manhood at, a, at an early age, embrace responsibility, and and don't wait around through some prolonged adolescence. Here was a young man who possibly was only in his later teen years, but was already proven as a worker, as a musician, as a fighter was eloquent and prudent, meaning he was wise. He knew when he knew what to say, when to say it. He knew when to be quiet. He could express himself in an efficient way. He wasn't bashful or quietly unconfident, but he didn't all, at the same time, he didn't just talk to be heard. Uh, this was a young man who displayed maturity and confidence. And ultimately the King of Israel hung the fate of Israel on this man's shoulders and sent him to combat against the Philistine champion and David killed him. And we know that we know the story. It's phenomenal. So hope you find encouragement in that. I hope it's insightful. And I hope uh I hope you'll enjoy these beyond the flannel graph sessions and segments. I look forward to bringing more of them to you. Thanks for listening to No Sanity Required. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps. Visit us at SWOutfitters.com to see all of our programming and resources. And we'll see you next week on No Sanity Required.